Hello, and welcome to Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast, featuring thought-provoking conversations with prospect development and fundraising experts. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Hi, APRA members. My name is Rachel Brindle-Mayers. I'm Associate Director of Research at the University of Michigan, and I'm here today with Lisa Greer. Lisa is the author of Philanthropy Revolution, and I'm really excited to talk with her more about it. To get us started, I'm just going to let Lisa introduce herself to us. Great. Well, hi and welcome, everybody who's listening. Thank you so much for having me on the program. So I wrote a book called Philanthropy Revolution, which people hearing this may or may not have heard of, came out about a year and a half ago, and it's the first book written by a donor. And I was astonished as a donor myself that there weren't hundreds of books written by donors about their perspective, because it's really the other side of all of the hundreds or thousands of books that exist about how to do fundraising and philanthropy. And what prompted me to do this is that I didn't grow up as a donor. I didn't ever use the word philanthropist other than maybe in negative terms, what things I heard in the news. And one day, uh, and so I was usually the volunteer. I was the person who didn't have enough money to be on the board. And so they would have me volunteer or do little committee things, things like that. So I wanted to give, but just didn't have those resources. And what we would give to would usually be local, like a PTA or Girl Scouts or things like that. Then about 10 years ago, my husband and I had a liquidation event with his company that he had been working on at that point for about 10 years in the motion picture technology field. I had a business in the fertility sector and healthcare and sold that. And we both found ourselves together in the 1% overnight. And about 10 days before that happened, and this is the beginning of the book, so hopefully you'll, you'll read it again in more detail. We were sitting together, realized it was, that it was likely that this thing was going to happen, this liquidation event, this IPO, and that we would become wealthy. And so we said, you know what, we're so nervous about it. And we're so, my husband was exhausted. Let's talk about something good and positive. Why don't we each talk about our first gifts? And so he decided that I, you know, I had him go first. And I said, let's each choose one. He decided he wanted to find out who was doing the best cutting edge research about Crohn's disease because he's personally had that since he was a child. And he wanted to find the research that would make sure that nobody else had to go through what he went through. And I said, great. And he asked me if I would, actually, I offered that while he was on the road and doing this stuff that I would do some research myself and try and find out where was that research being done and how could we help support it. At the same time, he asked me what I was going to do, and I said, I'm going to give a gift to our synagogue where I was the incoming president on the board. I'd been on the board for several years, and we were completing a capital campaign. We had a million dollars left that we needed to raise, and I said, I want to give the final million dollars, and just they can wrap up the campaign. I come in that way. It would be great, and he said, are you sure that's something you want to do, and I said, you know, it's a lot of money, and I said, yep, I want to go big, you know? And so I picked up the phone and I I said, I'll do the research for you while you're away and I'll try and find out where the best research on Crohn's is being done in the country. But guess what? We can actually make that call now, even though the money isn't in the bank yet, it's close enough that we can say, hey, if this happens, we're going to give you this gift. So I called my friend who was the rabbi and ran the synagogue and I said, you're sitting down, I've got something to tell you. And words came out of my mouth that I never thought I would say in my whole life. And I said, we've decided to give you the final million dollars for the capital campaign. And I don't know what I expected, but what I expected, whatever that was, was different than what I got. And the answer was, as I say, we're going to give you the final million dollars. The answer I got was, I don't know what to say. And I thought, I 
gee, that wasn't what I expected. And so I thought it'd be like Publishers Clearinghouse and, you know, cheering and things like that. And, and instead I got, I don't know what to say. And I said, well, I guess you could just say thank you. Pretty much the same way I'm saying it now. And she said, I don't know if I can do that because I haven't made an ask. And I didn't even really know what an ask was. I kind of sort of heard about it, maybe. And I thought, I, I thought, but I don't understand. Like, well, like, why wouldn't you just say, hooray, hooray, thank you? So uh, as if that wasn't bad enough, I hung up the phone. We were both felt very awkward about it and hung up the phone. She had been told that you have to do an ask. Otherwise, you don't, this, these things don't happen. Someone doesn't just call and give you money. So, so I hung up the phone, had a kind of weird look on my face. My husband says, what's wrong? And as he's saying that, the phone rings. And I pick, it's like 30 seconds later and I pick up the phone and she says, can I talk to Josh, my husband? And I gave him the phone. I thought, this is very strange. Maybe she's just going to say, hey, this is the coolest thing ever and say thank you to him. And instead she said, I just want to make sure that you understand that Lisa just made this phone call and that you're okay with that. And I, neither of us could believe what, what happened. And, and I really thought at that moment that something was very, very wrong, that I'd stepped into this twilight zone world. And then for the medical piece, we did realize that there was extensive research being done in Crohn's disease at the hospital where my husband had had most of his surgeries, which is here at Cedars-Sinai Hospital here in Los Angeles. And Josh had said, no, let's go to Stanford because they talk about research. And the problem was, is that Cedars-Sinai doesn't talk about the research, but they were doing a lot of research. So we found out that they had just brought in a person and they needed a chair to support it and whatever. So I called them, found the right person. Of course, they didn't know me because I wasn't on a list. So I got sent from the top person to the next person down to the next person down and finally to a guy in development who really wasn't sure if he even wanted to talk to me. But it was perfectly pleasant, but it was clear that, that he didn't know who I was and he was, you know, this wasn't his normal thing. But it took him seven months to accept $2 million from us because he didn't know who we were. We weren't, you know, and we'd called unsolicited and he just couldn't deal with that. And again, I, I felt like I was in the twilight zone. So we found out that, and I come from business, as does my husband, and I just thought, I don't know what this thing is. This, this sector is weird. And what I found out is that unsolicited gifts just freak people out, even today. I give them once every month or two, I'll give somebody an unsolicited gift. And more often than not, I will get an email saying, who are you? Or something, they're just like, I, I, I don't understand. And so it's like, well, you have a website, and it says to give here, and I sent you some money. Just say thank you. And uh, it's it's crazy. And people who also don't say thank you is also crazy. I find that really strange. But I realized that, especially with, well, like right now, there's about 650,000 millennial millionaires in this country. And although I'm not a millennial, I'm definitely younger than the people that are the powers that be that have been making these uh, institutional large gifts for years and years who are getting you know a lot of attention. They're the regular suspects, if you will. And I realized that there's people like me and people a whole lot younger who are making money and turning into millionaires and billionaires every single day. And they, if they get treated like I am, and there's no reason for me to think that they wouldn't, I've since learned that they are being treated like I was, I'm really afraid for the sector because they are going to have one of those interactions, not wait seven months, maybe wait two months, be ignored off and on, off and on, and, and, and not, or, or someone doesn't say thank you. And then they'll just throw up their hands and say, I'm not going to be a donor anymore. This is just not worth it. So they put their money into a donor advised fund. And we have $160 billion in those right now. And, and I think that that's not because people don't want to give. My, I bet that a whole lot of them had one bad experience and just said, this isn't for me. So I decided that I would write a book and explain the donor's perspective 
like mine. And I found out that lots of other donors had the same kinds of stories and also, but make it a prescriptive book to actually explain what do I hear when a fundraiser says certain things to me as a donor and, and what does that mean to me? And what does that mean relative to my interest in giving? And, and so far it's, I go all over the country, actually different parts of the world talking about this because turns out the issues here are the same in other countries as well. And there's some very easy ways of changing this and making it more appealing to and broadening the pie, really increasing the size of the pie. But we have to be willing to make those changes. And once we are, there's a lot of information and people like me out there who can help. Yeah, the book is really insightful. And I, I love the mix too between, it's in some ways very personal. You know, you tell your story and Josh's story and but it's also, like you said, there are some very concrete steps in there. So it's a nice mix and very readable. So I certainly encourage our listeners to get a copy and pick it up. Lisa, one of the things that you alluded to a little, you just alluded to, and you sort of start off the book with is this notion of Americans' distrust of nonprofits. You give the statistic that I think in 2019, only 52% of Americans said that they trusted nonprofits. And I was reflecting on that statistic a little bit, and I promise my other questions won't be so philosophical, but I was curious if you think that there's a correlation between that number and our broader societal circumstances of just being pretty polarized, there not being a lot of trust, I mean, in nonprofits, but what about corporations and government and people on the other side of the aisle, all of those things? Well, it's, it's really, it's a great question. Thank you. And it's very interesting. I just read a statistic the other day that actually, because there's these trust meters that some different organizations have and, and, and do research on that on a, on a semi-regular basis. And uh, they just came out with one saying that people actually trust, Americans trust corporations more than they trust nonprofits right now, which is really, I would have never thought that. And I mean, it was only by a few points. But yeah, it was crazy. And, and I think that unfortunately we have some highly publicized, not so great history. And, you know, you hear about the three cups of tea debacle, or you hear about, you know, the, the people, uh, you hear about Jeffrey Epstein giving, you know, giving money to Harvard and then they just accept the money and then, and then he doesn't even give the money, but he gets the press release and you hear those kinds of things. And, and I think um, there is a sense uh, and, and I think there's really more of this that's happened lately. For uh, example, there's a, there's a university, um, I think it might be University of Washington, but you'd have to, we'd have to check, um, where there's a professor who was, um, they took away her tenure because she discussed something in a class, which was the thing she always discussed, but the donor to her department or donor to the school uh, didn't like the subject. And so she uh, eventually, she's just left. This all just happened recently. And I think those kinds of things make uh, other donors, people who, you know, those those people who say those things, that's a very, that's a small minority of donors are people who are going to be, I always liken it to like the, the TV show Billions, you know, that, oh, I want my name on that. You take his name off. That's a, that's a small, small percentage. Maybe they have a lot of money, fine. But there's lots and lots and lots of people, but vast majority aren't like that. And you sit there and you think that and you think, I don't think I want to be part of an organization that panders to a donor like that. So even though it's a donor, I see no kinship with somebody who is who's doing that thing that the, the donor at University of Washington or Washington State, whatever it was, did. 
but but I do look at the organization and say, why would you agree to that? Why would you agree to take away the tenure of somebody who's a well-loved, respected professor? So so that and the the old adage of sort of the airplanes and private planes and spending uh, too much money and high salaries, which I don't think is terribly accurate and I don't think has been for a long time, but I think that's sort of the old school idea of that makes people not trust nonprofits. But I think the and then I think the the newer idea are these contemporary things that are happening and happening in our media that make you kind of say, who are these people who who just pander to whoever for money or you know, basically that sell out for, you know, to to a donor and it's not appealing. Yeah, well, I think we I mean, I can only speak for myself, of course, but I think we all want to believe that you know, nonprofits exist with a higher purpose, right? You know, they're consistent with their um, their values and all of those things. So, yeah, I totally hear you on that. Um, somewhat related, you talk a little bit of specifically about millennials, which I think is a really great point because this, you know, we all hear about the great, the wealth transfer, all of those things. And, um philanthropically speaking and nonprofit professionals, that's a really important event. Um, and you talk about how 90% of millennials say that they'll stop giving to an organization if they don't trust it. And that's a really big number, of course. And three quarters say that they'll stop giving if um, they're not told how their contributions will help. And so for those who haven't had the chance to read the book, from your perspective, what can nonprofits do to not lose millennial donors? Well, uh, so I would call it losing the opportunity because most of them don't have the donors in the first place. And, yeah. and another thing is saying having donors, even my, my wording, is, is you don't have a person. You work with a person, right? And you don't. Uh, and I, I think we're now talking about not really using the, the term uh, donation as much as we use investment. Uh, and and I think that it, 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 the and and this all folds into relationship as opposed to transaction. And I think that uh, that that millennials. There's a couple of different pieces with millennials. Um, uh, so there are uh, so the say the number of millennials. This uh, this uh, this is about six hundred fifty million six hundred fifty thousand is the same number of millennial millionaires is the same number as the total of all millionaires in the nineteen eighties which is kind of crazy. It's a huge number. And we haven't changed the way that we talk to younger people. So, uh, so some of the things that, that, that can be done to help that and help this trust is how can you believe when somebody says to you, uh, uh, you know, this is the way it's, you say I'm interested in organization. Actually, there's a story that's in the book that, that I think is probably the most telling. And, uh, there's this woman that we were speaking to who, uh, is a, a young woman, 20s, early 20s, I think early to mid 20s. She works at one of the big tech companies in Silicon Valley. I think it was Facebook or Google. And uh, they have a, and, and she's, so she's one of the, you know, whatever, tens of thousands of people who work there. And she happens to also have quite a bit of money uh, personally. So trust fund, that kind of thing. And she goes to a job fair, and it's not a job fair, like a job fair, they have a nonprofit fair. So they have a big room with booths around, like a job fair with different nonprofits to try and get people to volunteer or participate in them or give to them. 
And she had picked, she'd looked at the list in advance. She picked out the organization that she was really interested in, in working with. And she said, this is great. I get to meet somebody from the organization. And she goes up to the booth and she says, hi. And she introduces herself and she says, I'm really interested in talking to you about uh, participating in your organization and possibly joining your board, your board of directors, I think she says. And the uh, person on the other side said, looked her in the eye and said, what could you at your age possibly give to our organization? And I think that kind of wraps that up. Uh, that is that, that attitude, which is really, really prevalent, even right this very moment, is, is, is means, first of all, it's offensive, it's awful, it's, it, it doesn't look to the future, it's unsustainable, all of those things. But, but it also means that people who are becoming these millionaires and billionaires every day or every week, they are, I mean, imagine, is that woman going to go and start giving money to other organizations? I mean, she might just, that, that you might have one shot and that's the end of it. And you're just going to get such a bad taste in your mouth. You say, I just can't do this. I'll, I'll just, you know, leave it to my cat or something. It's just people, I, it's, it's really awful. And so in practice, uh, one of the things that I suggest that every nonprofit does is, uh, it, yes, you need to do what, what, what you'd mentioned earlier. You do need to tell people uh, how you're doing, but you don't, you know, what, how are you how are you doing in terms of your mission and in, in terms of impact? And and yes, they want to know that. But things that millennials want to do that break the mold, like me giving um, uh, unsolicited donations, they are breaking the mold by doing things like, well, first of all, becoming incredibly wealthy in their 20s and a lot of them. But 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 secondly, they are uh, breaking the mold in that if you want to call them on the phone, which is the normal thing, make X number of calls. They don't talk on the phone. If I mean, how many organizations do you know that actually do a lot of their work through texting? Most organizations I know aren't set up to really even do that. And so, yes, you can do emails and that's fine. Some nonprofits have been told don't do emails. You have to have a private meeting. How can you have how can you have this, the, the traditional, oh, you must have lunch with this person. You must go in the field and you must have lunch and, and sit across the table from them and see them when the person is working for a tech company and having Soylent for lunch and, and really, you know, they don't lunch. What are you talking about? I'm going to go lunch with you for two hours. That's two hours. I'll never get back. And I'm going to have it because you're going to ask me for money. So why don't you just ask me for money? And I feel that way, although I don't have soil for lunch. And, and, and they feel that way. I mean, think of how you would feel. And, and so almost everything that we do from recruiting people to, uh, right, because if you have somebody who's just become a gazillionaire, how are you? They're not going to be in your wealth engines. They're not going. It's not going to say what they do. It's not going to say about their previous giving over ten years. It's just not going to be there because it's not applicable. So really, what the upshot of that this is that 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 there is a big, 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 increasingly large pile of money sitting there that we in the nonprofit sector are just ignoring and and not doing really anything proactive to try and and bring that money into our organizations and work with the people who have that money for mutual good that you both make, it makes them happy. Like it made me happy to give, but, but I didn't, I, I, I wouldn't have been more happy if someone made an ask. I just wanted to give, it made me happy to do that. I love relationships that I have with organizations. It, it keeps me going. Uh, but I, it, it pains me to see how hard it is for people to get a $10,000 a $5,000 gift knowing or pander to a donor who's giving a million dollars a year, knowing that there's hundreds of millions of dollars sitting out there that nobody's talking to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the things that you, you mentioned um, just 
now, uh, and you mentioned in the book too, is the importance of the relationship. And I mean, your fundraising is a relationship business. One of the things that, and I can only speak from the, the University of Michigan perspective because that's the only nonprofit that I've worked at, but one of the things that we really struggle with is the volume. Um, we have 2 million records in our donor database and almost 10,000 um, individuals who are in the category of ultra high net worth. So we're, you know, we always talk about how we're, we're blessed with a volume issue and it's really hard for us to figure out who to prioritize because we, of course, you know, you, you want capacity, but we also want inclination. Both are really important when you're talking about philanthropy. Um, but one of the things that got me really excited about the vision that you set out in the book is the intersection between technology and relationship. You know, how can we use technology to better understand our donors? How can we use technology to, you know, create more targeted communication, you know, all of those things. Um, but I think sometimes it can be difficult to use technology and like technology is never going to be quite as personal as a human interaction. Um, so I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on yeah. that. I'd love to dig into it more. Well, thank you. Yeah. So uh, one of the things that's really extremely important is parsing your list. And uh, a lot of people don't want to, um, they, they say that they can, that their technology, their databases only allow them to have X number of fields and those fields are stagnant and those are fixed and you have to do that. I don't buy that. I think you can have a, you know, an Excel spreadsheet and do this. So what I suggest people do, you know, most, most nonprofits and most of the, many of the nonprofit consulting firms, um, they will check your, the, the value of your home. Typically the three things that they'll check usually on a, surveys, et cetera, value of your home, uh, the, uh, your political party, and your, uh, the um, uh, amount of money that you've given to political candidates. And, and that's what you usually get back. And, and right, um, is that about what you guys, hopefully you go beyond that, but you've heard that. Oh yeah, that's very familiar. Okay, so let me explain why that doesn't make any sense and what the answer is to make it better. So the political party doesn't matter because if they're already in your database, they're already connected to you. So what does it matter what political party they're in? Okay, check, get rid of that. The political donation doesn't matter because there's a cap on those. So it's not a realistic number. That's So get rid of that. And then the value of your home, you don't know about what their equity is on their home. You really don't know. They could have a gazillion dollar home with no equity or a million dollar home with all equity. And, and you don't know that. And so I think the amount of time that we spend on that is ridiculous. And I would love it if if customers of these clients and advisors just said, no, that's not good enough for me. In fact, what you should have instead is what I call a five, and you can use typical wealth engines that are already there if you want, but, but, but it drives me crazy when people pay for that information. So I recommend that people do a five minute Google search, um, which is really, I don't even know if you call that technology, but you do a five minute Google search. And you, you can get interns to do this. It's a great job for people who, who are just want to help. And on campus, you've got lots and lots of, of, of people power. And write down, like, what can you learn about the person in five minutes? And I, I had a couple of fundraisers say to me, oh, no, that's invasive. And I said, well, you know, 
you haven't been able to get into a college or university in the last, I don't know, decade without somebody doing a search for you know, on you online. It's done. And I, as a donor, expect you to do it. So, so for all those reasons, do that and then take the information you have on there and then create fields that you can have on a database that tell more about the person so that you're looking at really useful information about the person that's, that's real. Now, one of the ways that you can, you can do this, it's really, really, really easy, in addition to the five-minute Google search, is I suggest that every nonprofit sends out a survey at least once a year. And the survey asks the following three questions. And they, they can be, there can be several more questions if you want, but this is the survey. And, and it's been highly successful with other people who've, who've tried this. Number one is you say, how would you, this is, this is the new millennium version of talking to your donors and starting a real relationship. So the first question you ask is, how would you like to be communicated with? And that, so you have different checkboxes. It can be text, email, it's select all that applies. But what do you want to be, how do you want? Do you want a telephone call? Let the person say how they want to be communicated with. And by the way, this has been done at doctor's offices for, oh, I don't know, a couple decades. So we should be doing this in the nonprofit sector. Number two is you ask them, how do you like to be thanked? When you give a gift, how do you like to be thanked? And we have a big problem in that, in that there are assumptions made. If it's a big gift, we expect that you want to be in the press and you want a big to-do. I personally don't like the big to-dos. I, I just said no to one at my kid's school that's happening tonight because I just don't need to be around a whole thing of people saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm fine with an email thank you. So, so people are different. Uh, there's a whole scale of anonymous to I want to be my head, my name in lights, but people are somewhere in between and you should know. And you can take that data and feed that directly into spreadsheets into, into your, uh, your, your technology. The third question is, how often do you want to be notified of our impact? And you will find that most people don't really care about an annual report. And the younger you go, the least they care about it. Uh, but they do care about knowing how things, how, how, how's it going? What are you doing? And, and so what, when you ask them that question, this I borrowed from any retail store that you've ever uh, uh, signed up for online. And, and it, you ask, would you like to know as it happens is a choice. As it happens, do you want to know once a month? Do you want to know quarterly? Do you want to know annually? Just do that. Do you want to just wait for an annual report? And, and then you abide by that, right? You actually answer, you have them in a category and that's what they get. And it will tell you so much about your donors and already that's starting a relationship. But here's the really, really cool relationship part that happens. First, you get the information. More importantly, when we've done this with other organizations recently, the answer they got back, lots of them, was I didn't know that you cared. I didn't know that you as a nonprofit cared about us personally. They that is a message. You're getting information, but just as importantly, a side benefit and an additional benefit is you're sending a message that we care about you. We see you as an individual. And the more that you can have that person feel seen as an individual, the better. And this is a way you can do that with a, a multi-million person database and, and, and give that message without doing anything. One more really quick tip I have that I hope people will start doing, and, and I was keeping it kind of secret with a few of my nonprofit friends, but I'm going to send it to you now. Um, use, this is, this is the easiest thing ever. Thank you notes. So everybody likes different kinds of thank you notes, right? And you would put that in that question. Do you also, do you like a thank you handwritten note? Do you, are you fine with an email? Do you want a phone call? What do you want? Fine. 
But somebody called me recently and said, well, we're getting this special personalized stationery we're made, making, and do you like the design? And it's for thank you notes. And I said, oh, oh, okay, but why are you doing that? And he, well, because you know, there's an older woman who's with us and she thinks that's what we need to do. And we're going to have a writing party. I think that's great. Do that all day long. But typically, especially with mail service and things like that, you're not going to get it sometimes for a week and in some cases a month or two. Not okay. That person, everybody needs to be thanked right away. So there can be an initial thank you and then there can be the handwritten thank you. But here's the extra bonus thank you that you do. You, I, he, I asked him how much time it took him to write one of those thank you notes and they were supposed to be personal and all that. He said, I don't know, you know, maybe three to five minutes, three, four minutes, something like that. So in 30 seconds, you can create a video of you thanking the donor and send it to them in an email and it will blow their minds. And it's easy, you do it on your iPhone, you just say, hi, I just wanna say thank you. That was so, people, and I, I feel this coming, I think this is gonna be the norm in the next year or two, but whoever does it now, those donors are gonna, it, it's like, there used to be this thing that you could get at Costco where you would get a, a children's book and they would insert your kid's name in it because they wanted to see it personalized. People love to be recognized as individuals. And some of those things, will actually make people want to give to you without you even asking. I love the story that you have in the book about the video that you got from the five students at, in Birthrate. Um, I think, yeah, it's a great story. But remember the, the story there, and this was, this was a group of people that I helped uh, get plane tickets back from where they were doing an action in another country. And, uh, and, but, but it was, there's pros and cons of that. What I ended up getting was the most beautiful thing. I keep it on my desktop. I love it. Personal stories of these people thanking me it was way beyond anything I'd ever imagined. But a month after I did what I did for the organization, they still hadn't thanked me. And the reason they hadn't thanked me is because they were working on the video, but all they had to do is send a quick email saying, thank you. And we have another thing coming for you soon. And I would have been fine. But instead, by the time they told me that was there, actually they didn't even tell me as you read in the book, I had to call and they called me for money. And I called, I said, you know, I'm not sure I want to give you money. You didn't even say thank you. The last thing they said, oh, I'm so, so sorry. This thing's taking so long. So uh, put yourself in that person's position and think if you get, if that was happening to you, and I believe that every single human is a donor, everybody's given a coat or a pair of shoes or, a, you know, something to their kid's school, whatever it is. And think of yourself as a donor. And how would you feel if someone did that? So uh, so that, but is that is one of the places where I got the video idea from? Yeah. Um, there's, I think you're hinting at it a little bit here. This disconnect between what nonprofits think donors want and what donors actually want. I love that those numbers that you give around, like 50% of nonprofits think that donors want events, but. 16% of donors actually want events. Um, and I think you really hit on something there with just the need for nonprofits to better understand what donors want. And I think, you know, historically, of course, prospect development was, the, the function was looking up factual information on people, you know, biographical information, um, wealth ratings, that kind of thing. But I think you're right with Google and the internet and all, all of these things that becomes less relevant because a major gift officer fundraiser can get that information pretty quickly. Um, but I, I see an opportunity for prospect development to get involved in helping 
organizations, like through focus groups, things like that, helping organizations, nonprofits better understand their donors. Um, right. And by the way, one of the things that a lot of donors want to do is they don't want, well, they don't want to do is they don't want to be siloed. So we all, part, part of this sort of arcane culture that we have is that you put the volunteers in a box, you put the board in a box, you put the the, the, the low ticket donors in a box, the mail, you know, the direct mail people, you have the major donors in another box and they're not supposed to move from box to box. And guess what? They are. And all of the research is showing now that many, uh, maybe most young people who are young people, first of all, for a long time, we said, oh, millennials don't care about helping out. And that's just not true. And we've seen that all quite a bit in the last couple of years. Uh, but so, but what they do is they don't, they don't do it the way that we wanted them to, that we expect them to do it. So, but what most of them want is they want to volunteer. They want to tip their toe in the water and see what this organization is doing before they give. And that just confuses the methods we have because then you're in two boxes. How does that work? I don't know what to do. My volunteers are not supposed to be my, my, those, my big donors. That, that just kind of breaks the system. And that's where we really, um, we really have a problem. Uh, just to my point on this, and I think I put it in the book, is that, is that I, I tell or, when organizations say, oh, I don't know, volunteers, I don't know. Well, first of all, volunteers, typically your organization actually does have a relationship with the volunteers. And, and that feels really good. And those volunteers are very loyal. But when you, when people say to me, I don't think that those people have money, there's story after story after story. You, you, they're all over the place. You can find them in my book. You can find them online of, of bequests that happen after somebody's gone and it's the mailman or it's the person who was, who was pouring tea for people at the, at the soup kitchen for 10, 20, 30 years. And everybody at the organization says, oh, wow, didn't know they had money. So guess what? Wouldn't it be nice to know that like earlier, maybe before they're gone and, and, and have had that relationship. But, and usually they just, nobody asks them. When you get somebody who's older and that uh, you get that answer if it's before they pass, that just, you know, no one's really asked us because they were in the volunteer box. And it's really important that we, we realize that our system isn't set up for that, but it's a reality. When we really suffer from the box situation at Michigan, you know, just being part of a large organization, you know, like units, and you talk about the importance of collaboration. And I, I was between organizations, but I was chuckling to myself when I was reading that because I was thinking we can't even collaborate within our organization because you get, you know, well, that person is my alum, so you can't talk to them. But the reality is, is that just because that individual is your alum doesn't mean that they want to give to, you know, whatever school it is. They might be more interested in giving to the art museum or the library. Um, absolutely. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right. And guess how it feels as a donor. Again, think of yourself oh, as a donor. I'm if so I give, I, I make a relationship with somebody. I feel like they, I've got this relationship. It's great. We've gone to lunch a couple of times because I still go do the lunches sometimes and, and it's wonderful. And we gave this donation and it was great. And then you, you talk to them and say, you know, I, I, what do you know about that other building across there? That looks really interesting. Or one of my kids is involved in X, Y, Z. And they say, oh, I've got to have somebody else talk to you. And then I feel like, why? Like what I can't, you're, you're only a friend, quote unquote, and maybe, you know, a, a, certainly a, a colleague in this giving thing for certain things. And then I can't talk to you about other things. So I hate that. And I, I, I got to tell you, and when, when I hear people say that, that, and I didn't even know this happened until recently, that if you give it a certain level, there's certain people who, 
who handle that level of giving. But if you go to a higher level of giving, um, then it's a different person automatically. And that I actually talked to someone who was told she talked to somebody. He wanted to give her a very large gift because they've been giving her a small gift for a while. She took the gift. And when she went into her supervisor and said, I'm so excited, I got this, whatever it was, $50,000 gift from this person. Supervisor yelled at her and said, that's not your area. You need to have her. You need to call the guy and have him talk to this other person. And I, I don't know anyone who would want to be treated that way. Yeah, but I think, you know, the organ I say the organization when I say that I, I mean, just fundraising professionals in general. Sometimes it's like any big operation. Sometimes we really suffer from rules that just don't make sense in the circumstance and need to be able to be more nimble. And to your point, respect the relationship because that's really what it's about. And it's a long-term bet. You know, when you, when you, so the two things that I do to try and convince those people, uh, one of them is this 18% of people who give the first time, give a second time, that you're recreating that donor, donor database all the time. You know, that 82%, some people say it's, it's 80%, 90%, something like that. They just fall off after the first time. It wasn't a pleasurable experience and they don't want to do that. So, so that's a problem. We also found out recently, there's been a new report out that people, I just saw this last week, that people give um, erratically. So, so people who give might give year one, four, five, six, and then nine, and you look at them or the, the system looks at them as, as a, uh, you know, uh, uh, off and on donor. They think they've, they're supporting the organization. They don't have that calendar that says, whatever. It's like, oh, I gave them money a while ago. And if someone says, well, that was two years ago, that doesn't count because it was two years ago. Like what the heck? So, but what they found out is that if you respect those people, they actually stick around longer because they, they, the erratic giver sticks around as just as long as somebody who gives every single month. And in some cases more, and in some cases they'll surprise you with a much bigger gift. So we really need to look at it from, uh, from the money point of view, that there is money left on the table. There are people that we are sending away because of the way that the structure works. And, and uh, that people like me, people who are quote unquote major donors, uh, are, are, have had it and really need it to change. And so, but I think that the only thing that's gonna convince the powers that be to make change is to realize that, that this could actually be frankly, an easier and much more long-term, uh, it's not a marathon because it's not painful, but relationship ongoing could be multi-generational if we just treat people like human beings and listen to them and put ourselves in their shoes. And, and, and when you look at that and you say, you know what, if we had these relationships, someone might give off and on like that, but that might be a three generation family and that might keep getting bigger and bigger. And so when someone, and when someone says, oh, that's your gift, you need to make a giver, bigger gift this year. And I never even said I was gonna be an annual donor. That's an assumption and it makes me feel, it's, 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 it's just, it, it wouldn't be done in personal relationships. And if we think of it that way, we will be able to scoop up and, 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 and use and some of the money that comes from there, which is going to make it all the, uh, the more likely that we're gonna succeed in our mission. Yeah. I'm thinking about what you just said. And I think sometimes the volume that I was talking about earlier, the technology, I think can be a detriment to creating the strong relationship because people get, you know, like you talked about the parsing of lists, people get pulled into a list and there's not enough, there aren't enough checkpoints or whatever to, 
I think in the book, you give the example of getting called right after you, or maybe it's someone else, but getting a call, like a telephone type call right after you just gave a gift. There aren't enough checks to make sure that that call makes sense for that person at that time. Absolutely. And that drives, and that's what drives me crazy about Giving Tuesday, what she read about in the book. And I think that I have organ, it's a lot I can say about Giving Tuesday. It's in the book. I also write a lot about it on my blog. But the idea that I have, well, this year, I do keep track of it now every year. I had 11 calls once every hour from one particular organization on that Tuesday and three more the next day saying, oh, there's still room left on our matching gift. They didn't say we didn't make it. There's still room left. And we've extended it for another few hours, which to me was you didn't make your matching gift. So, but they did that. And I don't need 14 emails from, so I don't want to have anything to do with that organization anymore. And, you know, that, and a lot of organizations will say, well, oh yeah, well, that direct mail and Giving Tuesday, that's done by a different department, right? Or, you know, to your point. And that is dangerous. And we are, the big number that you got to show people who are, who are on the fence about this is $160 billion in donor advice funds. I do not believe that those are people who don't want to give. $160 billion growing exponentially of people who would rather have their money sit in a donor advice fund than now, granted, some are sending it out. Fidelity will tell you that 20% of it's going out, but they don't tell you that 35% more is coming in. So what that money is, those are people who I believe, I have to believe, I believe in humanity. Most people want to give the money, but they just can't bear it. They can't bear working with organizations who treat them that way. Yeah, that's something we have to work on. Yes. I believe prospect development has a role in that. It does. Absolutely. And it really in showing, showing, it would be interesting to do, do a database of people who, I don't know, maybe are, are giving to something odd that you wouldn't expect or just how much money is being left on the table. If somebody could actually figure out, because it's more than the amount of money in the donor advice funds for sure. And talking to millennials, and I've got, I think four of them profiled in the book, they are not going to put up with this. They're just not, they're just going to say, I won't do it. And you know, people like me, I'm kind of in between the two. And so I'll say, well, I guess if this is the way it's done, I've got to play the game. But I, I'm kind of more with them than I'm with the old school kind of thing. Is that is it? And I just, but it hurts me personally when I have the person, my solicitor, whatever it is, my fundraiser, and I've been giving for a year or two. And we've, again, we've had a relationship and all of a sudden I'm not allowed to talk to them or in some cases, I travel with them and I find out that the organization says you can't do that to them. Then it really is personally painful for me. So not only does it make the organization feel actually kind of dirty in my mind, but it personally makes me feel like, you know, someone just slapped me in the face. And I don't think that feeling, the feeling part of the donor doesn't seem to have been part of the equation when a lot of these systems were created. Yeah. You know, I say to my colleagues, in a lot of ways, we fundraise like it's 1951, you know, from white men. But I always say to my colleagues, gone are the days when the president of the university can send a generic letter to everyone and they're going to feel inspired to give. And we, all of us, receive so much communication, not just from nonprofits that we're involved in, but also from all of the for-profits that we're involved in that are communicating with us better. You know, they're sending us more targeted messages and the nonprofits have to be able to compete with that communication style. Otherwise, 
their communications aren't going to be open. They're not going to make the cut. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was interesting. I was just looking at the Super Bowl ads this year, as I'm sure most people listening on this saw some of them. Most of those ads, you would have never seen anything like those even 15 years ago. They were just, they were clearly ads for including the halftime show. These were ads for a different generation. So that there was a big leap from television 15 years ago to television today or ads 15 years ago to ads today. And I wish I could say in fundraising, there was that big leap also, but it's pretty much stayed the same. Yeah, we're always lagging behind our for-profit colleagues, that's for sure. We have to fight the good fight and keep it moving forward. Please do. Keep doing it. Lisa, I know we're almost out of time. I have one more question for you, if that's okay. Sure. I love the piece about Swipe Out for Hunger. And one of the things that I think it's the, it doesn't matter, the, the person from Swipe Out for Hunger that you're talking to she says that it's not a donor-centered organization, but an issues organization. And I found that to be really interesting, a really interesting differentiation. And I was curious from your standpoint, are the two things mutually exclusive? No, they're absolutely not. And by the way, that's Rachel talking who founded it. And I, I do believe they operate on your campus as well. They're they on- don't. I looked it up. Really? Because oh, they just had really a bunch. Disappointed. Well, let, you tell me who to talk to, and I will have Rachel talking to them because she's on over a thousand campuses now and doing amazing, amazing work. And so, for those who don't know what this is, Swipe Out Hunger is a is an organization that was founded to help people who are hungry, students who are hungry on campuses. And it's amazing, it, it, right? And so they she realized that there's extra money left on people's cards that they use on their subscriptions. And that just like goes away. And so if you were able to aggregate that, you would be able to feed all these people. And she's expanded it in a lot of other ways, but huge, huge impact. But I can tell you that Rachel is the personal piece, the relationship piece of that organization. It definitely exists. She can't help herself. She is just a social person who believes so strongly that, you know, it's one of those people where just being around her, you just want to give. She doesn't even really need to ask. And, and I think that might be one of the reasons why she says it's more mission-driven. But what I think she's also saying, my, my best guess, is that it's not an organization that is there because it has a board of people who don't have better things to do. And it's got a leader who wants to get publicity and all those things. She's not any of those things. She is 100% focused on getting food into the mouths of people who need it. But she also is very smart and she knows that it also takes money and it takes resources and it takes smart people. So of course she is talking to other people and there is a relationship piece of it as well. Yeah. Well, I'll let you go. I could keep talking about it for hours, but really fascinating. I only see so much opportunity for prospect development to help and play a part in some of the issues that you've identified. So that I think is really exciting. And hopefully our APRA colleagues will pick up the book and get excited and make some change in their own organization. I Lisa, hope so. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Oh, sure. And people can just go to lisagreer.com and my website will give you a tip of the week. It'll give you the ability to subscribe to the newsletter which comes out about every two weeks and also some other previous podcasts and things. So 
please do listen, spread the word. It's kind of a little bit gospel-like what I'm saying, but I am looking forward to working with all the people who, who know there's an issue and want to make change, and I know we can do it. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Beyond Prospecting, the APRA podcast. To discover all that APRA has to offer, visit aprahome.org. For links to content featured in this episode, check out the show notes. If you like the show and want to help others find us, please subscribe to and rate us on iTunes. Until next time.